our Father, it's a great miracle of your spirit that we can read and understand your word, that we can hear your word, and, and it's a great miracle when you speak to us and we hear it and apply it to our lives. So we pray that you do that in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you can think of a time recently when you asked for help, you know, perhaps something simple, maybe even just opening a jar of pasta sauce or bringing the shopping in from the car or getting help with your computer at home or at work. Even our gatherings on Sundays, that's lots of opportunities for help. Someone holding open the gate for you or giving you a lift home or the many ways we serve one another throughout the service and in meals together. Giving and receiving help, it's good for us as human beings, as creatures made by God. It shows our dependence, our dependence on one another and our dependence on him. It shows us that, you know, we're not okay just on our own. No, no man is an island. And this becomes more and more obvious when the help we need is more significant. You know, imagine, I imagine some of you have probably had to call triple zero at some point in your lives when you or someone around you has an urgent need of help. And and there's a certain shape to those calls, isn't there? Certain things that make up the conversation. What's the address of the emergency? What type of help is needed? Ambulance or fire or police? How urgently is their help needed? You know, they have different levels, different codes for their different urgent emergencies. Lights and sirens for some people. I've only been around a few emergency situations like that. And they've all been kind of ambulance type ones. And I'm often struck by how quickly the ambulance is able to arrive when it's needed and how capable the paramedics are with the, the task at hand of caring for this sick person. You know, situations like that reveal to us how extremely dependent we are as creatures. Dependent on God and dependent on one another. And in Australia, we're so blessed to have such a good system that we can be quite confident that when we call that number, we'll probably most likely receive the help we need and and even much more. But as people who belong to the Lord, we can have an even greater confidence. We are in the privileged position to call the God of the universe our Father and our Helper. Hebrews 13, verse 6 says, So we say with confidence, the Lord is my Helper. I will not be afraid. Our loving Heavenly Father invites us to bring our requests before Him and He delights to answer us. When we call on Him for help, we can be even more confident than when we pick up the phone to call triple zero. We can be even more confident that we will get whatever help we need. So that's, I think, what we see in Psalm 143 today, a confident call for help. It's also an invitation to call on God whenever we need help, with whatever challenge is presented before us. And, and this psalm also, it presents a bit of a challenge to us today in that 
do our prayers truly recognize God for who he is? What should our prayers, our calls for help look like? How should we call for help? You know, just like the triple zero call has certain shape and features to it, let's have a look at how we ought to call on God for help in our time of need. And to help us remember, our four points begin with the letters of the word help, H-E-L-P. You know, like many acrostic poems, it's not, it's not perfect. There's always a bit of a stretch in vocabulary when it, comes to, when it comes to acrostic poems, but hopefully it still helps us to remember. So firstly, the first characteristic of our call for help is that we come humbly before God. You know, right from the start, as I mentioned earlier, we see that the psalmist, David, he's in, he's in quite a low place, desperate for, God help, for God's help, and he knows that he is not perfect. He calls to the Lord to hear his prayer in verse 1. And, and then the second line of verse 1, it develops it. It's not just any prayer, it's a cry for mercy. And his appeal is on the basis of the Lord's character his faithfulness, his righteousness. David needs mercy to be spared from judgment because in contrast to God, the perfectly righteous one, David is far from it. No one is righteous the way God is. So there's no sense of entitlement here. David is completely dependent on God's mercy and grace. You know, in some other Psalms, there are claims of of righteousness. Vindicate me, Lord, for I've led a blameless life. But here, God is the one who is righteous, and no one else is righteous like he is. Here, it's crystal clear that compared to God, no one is righteous. And yet, he's calling for help because of how dire his situation is. Have a look at verse 3. There's an enemy The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. This enemy who has pursued, crushed, put the psalmist in the dark, it ends up in complete despair. Verse 4, so my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. So he's humble in the sense that he knows he is not righteous, deserving of special treatment. But he is also humbled in the sense that he's brought low. This enemy, whoever it is, has made David feel crushed on the verge of death. And we could take guesses at who this enemy is, but it seems to be deliberately vague. There are not many details and And sometimes the title at the top describes the situation David's in, but here it doesn't. Just one verse about this enemy here and no superscription. So it seems like it's to be picked up by anyone, any person of God, anyone among the people of God who who are in this type of situation and want to call out to God for relief in their distress. If we might think who our enemy might be, I think predominantly for us, we ought to remember that our number one enemy is the devil. 
He, he strives to make our hearts dismayed, to, to make our spirits fail, and other things that hinder us from trusting God and doing his will. There are all sorts of things the devil can use to discourage us and dismay us. So that's the first characteristic of the call for help. Humbly, knowing that we are dependent on God, dependent on his help. And then number two, expectantly. There's a bit of a turning point here in the psalm because there's, there's a reason to expect change. There's a reason to hope in this lowly situation. Because David remembers God's actions in the past. And that those actions, this remembrance, actually becomes like a bit of a bridge from despair over to hope. Hopeful expectation. And what is it that he remembers? He remembers the actions of God's hands. Creating the world, saving his precious people, Israel. And so what does the psalmist do with his hands? He lifts them up to God. This remembrance turns despair into some sort of hope and dependence, longing for God to act, expecting him to act, because he is a reliable God. Now, although it's not in the NIV, the, the word that's often translated soul is, is here in... Uh, let me get the verse real quick. Um, it's... Uh, I lift up my soul to you. My soul thirsts. That's it. It's in the thirsting. Verse 6, sorry. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And the word for, for soul in the Hebrew is actually the same as the, the word for throat. And so it causes this image of, of my soul, my throat, being thirsty for God. This comes up a lot in the Psalms. Our souls, our entire being is thirsty for God as if we've gone for a long walk in the hot sun and we just need a drink of water to quench our, quench our thirst. And there's an image here of just like a parched land thirsting for rain. Is that the type of desperation we have for God himself when we're in those low places or do we just want relief from our situation. Because suffering is still present in this world and, and will be until we reach heaven. There are things to lament about, things to thirst for change about, but more than change, this psalmist, he, he points us to thirst for God himself. Not just relief and, and fixing my situation, but dependence and thirsting for God himself. Because relationship, I'll say this again later, but relationship is not only the basis, but the goal of this lament, the goal of this cause, that, that we might turn to God in dependence and grow in our relationship with him. So the psalmist calls for God to rescue him, but more than that, he longs for him. He longs for relationship with him. And for us, even though the victory has been won on the cross and new creation draws near, lament is still needed. You might notice that we're in Psalm 144. 
143. And in the Psalter, in, in the Psalm, book of Psalms, it turns from lots of lament in the start and gradually praise starts to take over. And yet here we are so close to the end with about four or five laments in this section of the book. And I think that, that what that tells us is that even though in our position, the victory's been won, Jesus has died and risen, given us new life, sealed the future, but we still suffer. Even at this point, where victory is guaranteed, lament is still needed. There will still be things to lament about until Jesus returns. And yet we can expect that God will hear us and will act. And we expect, we longingly expect that return of Christ. So we've got humbly, expectantly, how else should we ask? Limitlessly. This was the biggest stretch in terms of my vocab. Here we have this increased intensity. There was a bit of a turning point from despair to hope. And now there's this great confidence as the psalmist just asks, asks, asks. Have a look. Verse 7, answer me. Do not hide your faith from me. Verse 8, bring me word of your love. Show me the way I should go. Verse 9, rescue me from my enemies. Verse 10, teach me to do your will. There's request, 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 and, and mostly at the start of each line. David calls God quite strongly, quite confidently to answer him. Don't hide your face from me. Show me the way I should go. Teach me to do your will. He wants God's help to, to not only relieve him from his situation, but then looking forward, help me to follow you. Help me to walk in your ways. And with with each request come the reasons for the requests. And so verse 7 talks about the situational reasons. He's in in dire straits. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I'll be like like those who go down to the pit. Desperate, yet confident. And he's confident because the Lord is his God. This is what we see in the next few verses. The reasons are relational in verses 8 to 10. I've trusted in you. I've put my soul into your care and protection. You, You are my lifeboat. You are my shelter from the storm. You are my God. A little while ago, I went for a walk with Mark. Some of you will know him. He's usually here on most Sundays, and the sun was shining, uh, we went down towards the bay, and then, you know, only, only 10 or 15 minutes down, the weather just turns, it's remarkable, I'm, I'm always surprised here in Sydney how quickly the weather can turn, in Canberra, it's either sunny all day or rainy all day, here, it's sunny one hour and then rainy the next, and then it'll be sunny again, anyway, so we're going down for a walk, sunny on the way down, and then down when we're at the, at the bay, it starts dribbling, and then, you know, only one minute later, it starts pelting down. We've, we've got sunny weather clothes on, no raincoats, and so we're kind of marching, half running up, up, to, up to Lions Road, and finally we just take shelter under, under the veranda outside Ramsey's. 
And I'm sure Ramsey's, the cafe, would have liked it if, you know, we went there to buy a coffee. But we were just there to shelter from the rain. And shortly after, we walked our way away. We take shelter in God, not just for relief from the storm, but we go to him for relationship. Because, like I said before, relationship is both the basis for our prayers, but also the goal, this goal of walking your way. Show me the way I should go. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. And there's this shift. I don't know if you notice some of the repeated vocabulary in the psalm. Spirit pops up earlier. Verse 4, so my spirit grows faint within me. Verse 7, my spirit fails. And then the next example of this word, verse 10, may your good spirit lead me on level ground. We ask God to, to kind of take over our fainting, failing spirits with his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so what what do we see here about the nature of this prayer? Asking limitlessly. Ask, ask, ask. Because we come to a God who is limitless in his storehouses of what he can pour out on us in terms of his grace and his deliverance. We're not praying to a God who's sitting on his throne and trying to work out, oh, if I give this much to Andrew, how much is left for Nick, how much is left for Dave? And oh, I've got to, you know, apportion my resources. No. God has an abundant storehouse of grace. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, all-loving, and is willing to and able to and loves to do what is good and best for us. You know, just like a kid might ask their dad, oh, can we do this, can we do this? Can we go to the park? Can I have ice cream? Can I have some chocolate? Can you read a book to me? Can we play? And how do, how do dads sometimes respond? Oh, <laughs> I can only, I've only got two hands. I've only got a human body's worth of energy. But what do we see here? Answer me, Lord. Come to my relief. Show me the way I should go. Teach me. This is the type of prayer that shows us, shows that we know who God is. We know he's able to answer this long list of prayers because he, he is God. So I think that confident prayers, people who are confident in who God is and what he's capable of, will have a long list of things to ask for. Sometimes, sometimes we might hear or say ourselves, I think I've said it, oh, you know, we shouldn't bring a shopping list to God. But I think what we see here is bring your shopping list to God. We are so dependent on Him and He has an abundant abundance of what He can give us. You know, I, we see a variety in the Psalms. We don't see only shopping lists. We see much praise and adoration. So we ought to pray that way as well. 
But let's not be fooled that our shopping list prayers are somehow an offense to God. It, I think, more than anything, it's a demonstration of our dependence on him. And perhaps I should clarify, shopping list, I, I just mean a long list of requests. I'm sure there are some requests that are more in line with God's will than others. And so we ought to, you know, as the psalmist prays, teach me to do your will. Teach me to know your will as well. May our prayers show our dependence on him and gradually come more and more in alignment with his will for our lives. Limitless prayers. Now lastly, I'll let a P, purposeful prayers. Well, we see that David is being directed and protected, or he calls for direction and protection by God. Why? Verse 11, for your name's sake, Lord. He wants to bring honor to God's name, and he wants his, even just his well-being to show people around him, hey, my God is the God to follow. The Lord's reputation is at stake when his anointed king is being crushed by his enemies. So he prays for God, destroy those who oppose oppose him and oppose his people. Out of his loyal, steadfast love, his love for his people Israel and his anointed king. Not that God shows favoritism to whoever cries out to him the loudest or first, but I think when we cry out to God and ask him to act, we're declaring our loyalty to him and we pray for his will to be done for the glory of of his name. We're We're not asking for him to join our team, to join our agenda, but when we pray, Lord, your will be done, we're joining his agenda. If we are his servants, we appeal to him as Lord and seek to do his will, not not our own. For your name's sake, Lord, preserve my life. And again, it's out of God's character that he makes this call. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. So many psalms turn up, kind of, there's, there's praise and hope at the end, but it's almost like David's still waiting for that. He's still in the thick of it. The psalm ends and David is still waiting for the Lord to bring him out of trouble. God's reputation is still at stake. David is still crushed by his enemies, waiting for God to act. And so there are many situations in life where we might feel that tension. We can confidently call out to God, Lord, you you can change my situation. Bring me out of trouble. But I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for you to act. And generally, in terms of the grand grand picture of salvation. That's the tension we live in now. Jesus was crushed for our sins, the sins of the whole world, yet when he died, there were people mocking 
as he bled and died to offer them life. This anointed king was crowned but with thorns. This anointed king was lifted up and exalted but on a wooden cross. And yes, he was vindicated. He was raised to life, but there are still enemies of God today who mock or ignore the Lord Jesus. God's reputation is still at stake because there are so many who don't even think he exists. And so we might also pray, for the sake of your name, Lord, preserve our lives, help us to do your will, and Lord, come again so that everyone may see your glory. Because I think faithfulness to God in the midst of adversity is to continually cry out to him, to cry out to him even when we're still waiting. So that's purposeful prayer. We come humbly, we come expectantly, we come limitlessly and purposefully seeking God to do his will for the sake of his holy name. There was a time, uh, uh, probably five Maybe 10 years ago. I don't know how old, I, <laughs> how old I was then. But I was working in an IT consultancy, one of those kind of corporate jobs where grads from uni get, you know, plonked into all sorts of positions. And then these grads are kind of, myself included, really driven, driven to climb the ladder, driven to produce, you know, great results for the company pressure to to climb the ladder, work lots of hours, grow in responsibility. And in the end, at the place I worked, shape your whole life around this workplace. You know, your friends are here, your work is here, your social life is, everything is wrapped up in this company and this lifestyle. So after perhaps a year, I was probably feeling in some of these ways that the psalmist was describing. And I'd often drive to work and then just sit in the car in the street for a while doing my quiet time and reading psalms like this, praying for relief from this pressure cooker. And sometimes even when I read the word enemy, sometimes the faces would pop up of the the managers who were driving me driving me to work longer hours, driving me to work weekends, driving me to, you know, take responsibility above my pay grade. But I didn't ask God to destroy them. Um, But I think this psalm is our cry for help in times like that when things are just overwhelming. And perhaps even when we've been praying for a while and we're still waiting for God to answer. And so we can take up this psalm and psalms like this to call for help, to call humbly, expectantly, limitlessly, purposefully to the God who who is perfectly righteous and to the God who is reliable, to the God who delights to hear his children's prayers and to pray these things for our good for his glory.
for that purpose. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is in heaven interceding for us, that we have even more confidence than David that you will answer, hear and answer our prayers. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to trust you when your answer is not perhaps in the form or the timing that we hoped for. But Lord, we thank you for the guarantee that Jesus showed when he died and rose again and ascended to heaven that, that we have hope, we have an expectation of a day when all will know that you are the Lord and will have final relief from all our distress. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.